Hey everybody and happy new year. Welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. 2024 movie love for 2023 movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm joined for this very special episode on our favorite movies of 2023. As always, by Adam Risky. Hi everyone. And JB. Congratulations, we made it. Hooray for Hollywood. <laughs> that gooey ballyhooey Hollywood. This is always one of my favorite shows to do, and I will admit that in years past, it has been less of a favorite show to do because I haven't felt great about my lists, which isn't to say I feel great about my list this year, but it's full of great movies. Uh, my list-making skills, of course, are can be called into question, but... All of the movies on uh, my list are good this year, and I wasn't putting anything on because I was like, I don't know, I need a number 10. How about Violent Night? Which isn't a knock on Violent Night. I really like Violent Night, but does it belong on the top 10? I don't know. I, I like your list way. this year, but it's mainly because I saw the penmanship got better since last Thank year. You. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, much easier to make the list this year. I yeah. Mean, Really, much, much easier. To the point that I was, I'm was, i leaving stuff off that I would love to put on. Well, usually at the end of the podcast, we all have runners up, and we, right. have, we have those this year, correct? Yeah, of course. Yep. So get your pencils ready, because at the very end, you're going to want to scritch, 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 scribble, 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 scribble. For sure. You're going to wanna be, you're gonna wanna be writing titles down this entire show, uh, because these are the... 30 most important movies that you could have seen from 2023. Um, I'll be writing down titles and the names of old girlfriends to look up later on Facebook. <laughs> uh, we will do what we always do, which is, but I have a, a an addition this year since we're on zoom video. Um, we will do the thing where we will say the title of a movie at its place. If it is higher on someone's list, we will table it and wait until uh, it, it reaches its highest position to discuss it. But I suggest we just raise a hand on the video feed instead of saying like, oh, it's higher on Adam's list. Because that spoils the surprise for anybody listening. If Adam jumps in and says higher, now we know essentially ostensibly what Adam's number one is, you know, if we get to that point where we're just playing process of elimination so we'll just raise our hand on the video if it's higher on your list and then we'll just keep it a secret as to that's a that's a good idea how long did it come how long did it take you to come up with that we've been doing this podcast for 13 years and because usually when adam shouts higher he means uh his gummy has just kicked in right yeah i have another suggestion maybe we could try it next year if you're not into it um if a movie's higher on, say, John's list than it is on my list, then John can talk about it, but I can't. And I have to, it's like White Elephant, and I have to go pick another movie. <laughs> now, like see, it. here's the here's the mood I'm in on New Year's Day. I honestly thought just now, Adam, you were going to yeah. say, I have another suggestion. This year, if JB could just talk a little less, <laughs> that might be a, a precedent we want to start. It is 2024. I think JB should be he should be limited to raising his hand. <laughs> I'm gonna call it, I'm gonna call you Mr. 35 millimeter because you're projecting right now. <laughs> because fans of the podcast will know I never said I, that. 
How dare you, sir? <laughs> Fans of the podcast will know I prefer to be called Mr. Six. And that's a very obscure reference to tough guys. Don't I dance. got it. Don't you worry. Look it up, baby. He gave me six orgasms. Um, I called him Mr. Six. J-Bones, I already forgot, but according to the Patreon episode that just dropped, what are we supposed to be calling you now? The man name master. <laughs> oh, there it is. The man name master. I'm sorry. Yeah, I already you, forgot. Thank you, Cinemark. <laughs> I don't have enough nicknames. <laughs> uh adam you're number 10 sir so i'm gonna borrow doug's bit this year because oh sweet i just want to have some fun so i haven't seen a movie as good as my number 10 pick since zodiac speaking of david fincher so my number 10 is knights of the zodiac (laughs) Uh, that movie doesn't exist just kidding Uh, (laughs) number 10 is past lives is that a thumbs up like thumbs up like keep going okay good now i know the signals <laughs> this is a good radio um <laughs> so past lives um was a i it harkened back to when i worked at blockbuster and i would go to the international cinema row and i would like pick up all these movies from like asian cinema or french cinema and they and one thing i really liked about them was they were like mood pieces and very like um cognizant of the character's inner turmoil and feelings and i sort of got that flavor from past lives which is my first movie i think i've ever seen that celine song has done i'm not sure if this is her first movie or not but um i love the performances uh Teo Yu and um, Greta uh, Lee and John Magaro are all very, very good in it. Um, it's like this subtle, calm love triangle. Um, I think it has a lot to say about how events can mean so many different things to different people. They could have either more or less impact on people, how people's past can be things that they can't let go of. Um, but I just think this is just like such a good performance movie. And I think the way that it um, is so considerate of all of the players in this love triangle, so to speak, is really mature and interesting. And it's a movie that once I saw it stuck with me a lot throughout the year. I have been Um, wanting to see it since it played at the Chicago critics film festival and hadn't until last night when Erica and I snuck it in because I knew it was going to be on your list, Adam, and I wanted to at least be able to speak to it. Um, I think it's so good at being about what it's about. Like, I think it's the best possible version of the story that it's trying to tell. I think it's so sad. Like, and it isn't even like that sad of a movie because what it's saying is kind of beautiful and hopeful and, um, but there's a moment after two characters wait for an Uber that like mm-hmm. didn't break me into tears, but definitely could have. I think if I would have seen this in a theater and sort of been more giving myself over to the movie more, we were watching it at home. We had to break it up over like two viewings and it's not the way to watch a movie. Um, but as you said, the performances are great. It's so well observed. Um, it's so deliberate i've seen it show up on a lot of top 10 lists including in a lot of number one slots and i can't argue with it i think it's i think it's a really really 
strong piece of work. Yeah, I, I found it really touching that like the Teo Yu character, it's it's like he needs this, even though he knows that this can't happen, he needs it to exist in some way. Yeah. So it's like his way of like using Inyun as sort of like a compartmentalization thing, but it's also preventing him from like living a full life on his own. Mm -hmm. um, so I just thought that it was so uh, honest about just how difficult it is to move on from, you know, people who have touched us. If, if, because like, as you go through life, you know, like you always kind of go into, especially at a young age, you expect whether it be friends or, or romantic partners to be like, a huge part of your life forever because they're a huge part of your life in the immediate. Um, and that's not the case. Most people are like coming in and out of your life and it's very difficult for people to move on from it, especially if it's a formative memory of right. like first love or whatever like that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Patrick, I need you to pause the recording. I'm sorry. That's okay. I just screwed up big time. Okay. But I think I figured out, in my defense, I haven't screwed up that many times on the podcast. That's okay. But, and I think there's a way out of this. I'm such an asshole. The killer is not on my list. <laughs> I Okay. Because you, because you went to me first, my <laughs> eyes went to the wrong way. Where was it? Was it an honorable mention? It's the 10th runner-up. <laughs> okay. Which may explain why it's not on your lists. And I was like, oh, that's on my list. So if you could, okay, here's my thought. Edit out all the killer stuff. Okay. Go to Adam first. Okay. For his 10th. And now go to me for my 10th. And I'll actually talk about my 10th. Okay. Which I know is higher on your list. And maybe I, I'm such a dope. That's okay. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, give me just a couple seconds of silence here so I can see on the waveform where to jump back in. That is an awesome pick at number 10. Adam J. Bones, the matinee master. What is your 10? Uh, my number 10 is May, December. And we will talk about that in a bit. <laughs> uh, my number 10 is a movie that I'm not sure either of you guys have seen. And so I apologize because we won't be able to talk about it much. It is the debut feature from television writer Cord Jefferson, who co-wrote the screenplay and directed it. And it is a movie that J-Bones, you've talked about a few times on the past couple podcasts called American Fiction which stars Jeffrey Wright as a frustrated writer whose books aren't selling. And so he decides to write a book uh, that is, he, he feels like what is selling is sort of this pandering black literature. And so he decides to write a book called fuck that is the most pandering quote unquote black book he can possibly write. And, of course, it becomes an overnight sensation. Um, so there's a lot of satire in it about race and art and how those two kind of play off of one another. But what I think makes the movie 
genuinely special is that there's a half of a movie that isn't about any of that stuff. That's really just about him dealing with family drama. He has uh, a mother who's starting to go through dementia. He has a brother whose marriage uh, played by Sterling K Brown. His marriage has recently ended. He has a sister who's frustrated about having to take care of the mother played by Tracy Ellis Ross there's a woman who lives across the street played by Erica Alexander. It's great to see her show up in something after a long time um, that he's kind of interested in. And so it's just this interesting sort of drama about characters and relationships. And then every once in a while we jump back to the, the satire of the fuck book. Um, and, and I know part of that is about, you know, Presenting the characters the way that that Court Jefferson presents the characters is about almost combating or smashing the stereotypes that the movie is making fun of. Um, and I think it works really well on that level, but it also works on just a, an interesting human level that you would want to watch these characters play out in a drama. Um, so I think it's really smart. I think it's really warm for being as satirical as it is. I think it's, again, very... Um, kind of well observed in terms of what it's saying there's an amazing i i can't spoil it there's a a woman at one point says the punchline to a scene is a woman saying we need to listen to black voices now more than ever and it comes after three white writers have overridden the two black writers in the room and it says everything. It's so, so funny. Uh, I think it's a really good movie. Rob had talked about it on his five movies that were like in his almost top 10 um, and said it, of course, much more eloquently than I'm saying it here. But it's it's very much worth seeking out when you are able to. I saw the trailer for the first time before Iron Claw, and I really, really wanted to see it but it hasn't gotten out here yet. Yeah. I think it's smart. Now, again, I haven't seen it yet. I think it's smart though, for him to focus on the human character story, because if you don't do that, you risk the movie sort of becoming an SNL sketch. Like I think parts of bamboozled do. Cause after I saw the trailer bamboozled is the film I compared it to. I think bamboozled kind of rules, but I don't disagree with it. I think bamboozled rules until it becomes network. Uh, at the end, but, um, I, I, I see what you're saying. I think it would be hard to sustain if that was the only thing on the movie's mind, it might be hard to sustain that for an entire feature. And that's now the movie I'm most looking forward to see in the new year. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I'm uh, glad that you kind of went into what more it's about also, cause the trailer I think is definitely just going for the satirical Oh, okay. I never saw a trailer. Yeah, the satire, the, the trailer's all satire, and you wouldn't know anything about like his family situation. So that makes it sound more interesting. To yeah, check. definitely. And I'm not the first person to say this, but it's great to see Jeffrey Wright as a leading man playing like a normal character. Not you know, he's more of a character part uh, or more of a character actor, I should say. And yeah. He's always great when he shows up and stuff. He has that amazing voice. And a great presence, but it's nice to see him get to play, you know, a lead for once. So mm-hmm. you're saying his performance in American uh, fiction bests his performance as Sebastian in The Little Mermaid. 
Is he Sebastian in The Little Mermaid? I thought it was... In the, uh... in the animated version. Really? The, the little crab. The one who sings Under the Sea. I thought that was David Diggs. No, I'm talking about the, the cartoon. He's, oh, not, he's, the voice of he's Sebastian. not the voice of Sebastian, you maniac. <laughs> Wait, are you serious? I've thought that for decades. No. Are you I'll sure? No, I'll but do. I don't yeah. know who it is for sure, but I definitely know it's not Jeffrey Wright. I'm looking it up. Hold on. The original animated, the one with Buddy Hackett. Samuel E. Wright. Wow. Yeah. I stand correct. Same, la- same last name. Wow, but not I, Jeffrey. I just, I whatever he would perform, I was like, what a range! He was Sebastian. <laughs> the irony is, he's right and you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting on in years. It's okay. Thank you for disabusing me of that nonsensical. <laughs> uh, so we are at Adam's number nine. Uh, so my number nine is also my favorite title of the year, which is that time I got reincarnated as slime, the movie colon Scarlet Bond. I like that there's a colon after that time I got reincarnated as slime so that you wouldn't be confused. It's like Dungeons and Dragons colon honor among thieves. You're like, well, which Dungeons and Dragons is it? But this this corrects that. Yeah, it's an anime. I have not seen it. It probably <laughs> I I I'm fully expecting at least one person to put in the comments. Actually, it's pretty good. But anyway. <laughs> I thought the colon in Dungeons and Dragons was hopeful and that it was yeah. preemptive and that they were hoping to make further films. I, I think that's state. I think that's what it is. But I remember yeah. going all the way back to the original Pirates of the Caribbean being annoyed when the first one came out that it was like Pirates of the Caribbean colon the curse of the black pearl or something because at yeah. the time they weren't guaranteed sequels and i was like just call the movie pirates of the caribbean why do we need like a little subtitle oh mm-hmm. that's why yeah uh my number nine for real is bottoms well that's interesting because that's my number nine as well go for it boys all right john you take the lead well first of all it's the movie that made me laugh the most this year and laugh in the most full-chested, audacious way. I was I was not only impressed by the jokes and they made me laugh, but just the worldview that the film has and presents. And maybe part of this is that in a former life, I was a high school teacher and the film's portrayal of a modern American high school is interesting to say the least. Um, the film has a lot on its mind, but that's never subsumed to the entertainment or the humor. Amazing performances. Crazy, just crazy stuff. Yeah, I, I loved just the uh, once I tapped into like, oh, this is just a completely absurdist world where anything can happen. <laughs> it was so freeing and really fun. And just the fact that it also kind of balances like the darkness of like Heather's type humor um, it was exciting to see Rachel Sennett and I'm blanking on the first name, but the director Seligman, what's Emma? her first name? Emma Seligman. Thank you. Um, this is so different from Shiva baby mm-hmm. yet equally as successful. So mm-hmm. it just makes you excited of like, what else can they do? Like they're just super talented. 
And then Io Edaberry is like one of my favorite discoveries of the year. I wasn't familiar really with her work, but this sort of led me down the rabbit hole of like a lot of sketch comedy that her and Rachel Sennett did prior to even Shiva Baby being released. And that's great. And you and I talked about it in our great performance article, but like Ruby Cruz is just on another level. It's maybe the best supporting performance of anybody in the entire year. Um, I love the score. Uh, Charlie, Charlie XCX, XCX yeah. is a co-composer on it. It's her first movie score. It's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I, I've watched this one more times than I've watched any other movie in my top 10. It's just so easy to put on and fun. And I'm always missing jokes and then like finding them on subsequent viewings. My favorite joke is when... <clears throat> Oh, my favorite joke is when Rachel Sennett is talking about um, how she wants to start a fight club for female empowerment. And Ioetta Berry is just like, what about female empowerment? Your favorite show's Entourage. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I was really impressed by was the cleverness of the film extends to the art direction. Because you can have a completely satisfying viewing of Bottoms just looking at what's behind the actors because frequently they're in the high school and the posters and placards and things in that high school are the weirdest shit you've ever read. And they never paint a mustache on it. They never zoom in. They never make a point of it, but man, that took a lot of thought and a lot of uh, poster paint. Yeah. It's like smile. He'll think you're prettier. (laughs) (laughs) This was um, on my top 10. Uh, I took it off for American fiction. I think specifically because I knew that it would be on at least one other top 10. I was like, well, we're going to be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that a year from now, this is going to be the one that haunts me. Like I should have put that on my top 10 because like you, Adam, I think this is the one I'm going to revisit more than something like American fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I tweeted out when the movie came out something that I was kind of joking about, but I think it holds true that like a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, Bottoms is going to be a a major cult movie. And people are going to be on Twitter saying, why didn't anyone tell me Bottoms is so great? And it's like, well, we did in 2023. The truth is Rob told you because the only reason I went was his review, which really sold me on it. So thanks, Rob. Yeah. Um, It's amazing and i don't often i don't know if i've ever used this word on the podcast um it's audacious mm-hmm. the way that it looks at life even though it's exaggerated and for comic effect is audacious yeah it's such an interesting i don't want to say it's a level up from shiva baby because but shiva baby is so contained and it's such kind of a character piece uh, and this More is expansive. Yeah, it's much bigger in scope. Uh, it it belongs to almost a completely different subgenre. It's really trying to do totally different things. And I hope that Emma Seligman and Rachel Sennett make a lot of movies together because they're quite a, a great pair. Yeah, it was exciting in the way that. Do you remember that movie Mystery Team with Donald Glover? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, where it's just like this is hilarious and it will just go anywhere for a laugh. And it's so just invigorating to see that, especially when, and I'm, 
like I'm comparing it to like comedies that are grossing more like anyone but you that just plays it so safe because it's trying to revive the romantic comedy and it's like guys you can try stuff it's like you don't have to just follow the formula completely so I love comedies like like bottoms and also it's progressive in a way but it's like not calling attention to itself either right which is kind of interesting too I don't know I think like for better or worse there's a lot of movies that i agree with like the messages like that are happening in these movies like i'm thinking of barbie maybe as the most pressing example but like there's other movies that do it in a more subtle way it doesn't like stop for a speech and you can kind of feel like the director's fingerprints all over it mm-hmm. and i think that bottoms is just like so confident in like this is our world let's play in it and you'll get it. And I just like, really like that. About and it. I think that's the harder road. Yeah. Not uh, take out the enormous Brown shit hammer of obviousness and have the audience pat themselves on the back for getting it. Yeah. The first you, you hinted at this when you were talking about it, the first half hour of bottoms is an interesting viewing experience because Senate and the director know that you have to get acclimated to this world yeah. because what they're presenting is not reality, but you do. Um, I remember the audience I saw it with just loved it. Yeah. Crazy audience reaction. I love their Yoda character too. That's just so great. <laughs> <laughs> and then at one point uh, she's just like, I have no idea what you just said. And it's like a hard cut to the next scene. <laughs> <laughs> um. My number nine is a movie that I was weirdly hostile towards before it came out. Mm. It's the only movie on my list that I sat down and I was like, I'm not going to like this and you better change my mind. And that is The Holdovers, which we will come back to. I think the marketing was responsible oh, yeah. for that. Again, reaction. I never saw a trailer. I think it's just I'm I was angry at Alexander Payne for some reason. <laughs> and I don't know why, but it had been a while since he made a movie that I had really liked and I just was like, you better convince me this is good. And and, uh, and the trailer is is 4 minutes of warm and fuzzy 70 goodness, 70s goodness <laughs> and you're going to love it. Um, Introducing your new beloved character. (laughs) Uh, So we're at uh, Adam, you're eight. Okay, my eight um, was a movie that I haven't seen a movie this good since The Godfather, and that's Mafia Mama. (laughs) Somebody somewhere said that movie is surprisingly violent, and that's all it took for me to be like, I kind of want to see it now. (laughs) I remember seeing the trailer for that. The, the, just the entire time I'm watching The Godfather, I'm like, blah, male point of view. What's the mama <laughs> Wait, isn't Tony Collette in there? Yeah. yeah. I saw a trailer for that this yeah. year. I thought it was a. I thought I was watching an Adam Sandler movie with a joke trailer. And Monica Bellucci. Yeah. Uh, my number uh, eight is Poor Things. Okay. Uh, so, J-Bone's your eight. My number eight, which I'm pretty sure is only on my list, but I stand by it, man. When I'm with you, I'm with you till the very end. Uh, It's a haunting in Venice. uh, The third of the Kenneth Branagh, Hercule Poirot films. 
And I still remember when the trailer first dropped and I was like, wait, Agatha Christie and Halloween? Is this, are they just, it's not even going to be streaming. They're going to bring an IV and they're going to put the movie into my vein because <laughs> this was made for me. Um, it's actually based on a book called Halloween Party, but I'm guessing that didn't sound highfalutin enough. So they changed the title. Um, and it's not just because I have such affection for the previous two films, um, one of which I believe put Adam to sleep. Um, you have affection for Death on the Nile? Yes, I do. It's right. lesser. It's not as good as Murder on the Orient Express. You. But Can I'm... I tell the sleep story real quick? Because that, yeah. that, So John and I were in the same theater at the same time for Murder on the Orient Express, but did not know. Um, he was sitting uh, further up and I was sitting in the back and I was there with Mark uh, on and Mark and I both fell asleep at different times. And at one point when I fell asleep, I spilled my whole bag of popcorn on him. <laughs> now, I will say Haunting in Venice does fix something that some people who fall asleep and spill popcorn might say is wrong with the first two in okay. that it's very short compared to the other two. It is it is short and to the point. And I loved a lot of his casting ideas. I thought the scary parts were really scary. Um, I later read that the Tina Fey character is very different in the books because that's a character that appears in more than one Agatha Christie novel. But I just enjoyed it. And maybe the reason is because, and this was featured prominently in the trailer, uh, we get to see a zoetrope of a skeleton. And if uh, attention marketing people, if you show a zoetrope with a skeleton in your trailer, I'm there. That That's all it takes. That all That's all it takes to drag my ass to the theater. Um, I enjoyed the fact that they actually released it at the right time of year to take advantage of that. And uh, I don't know how well it did, but there's currently a contratemp on the social medias because murder and death got 4K releases and Haunting in Venice is not. Interesting. Um, That's annoying. Is I it getting a physical yet, release at all? It got a physical release on Blu-ray. Okay. And you can download it like from Apple TV in 4K. Got it. Um, I haven't yet rewatched it. Maybe my initial reaction was overenthusiastic, but I just enjoyed the hell out of it. It's comfort food for the matinee master. <laughs> it's streaming on Hulu. I have not yet watched it because I didn't love the first two. I liked the first one better than the second one. And the second one burned me so much that I was willing to skip. Even though I wanted to see Tina Fey play against type, I was willing to skip a haunting in Venice, but now I'm going to watch it in its defense. I think it's the best of the three. Okay. For, for any number of reasons. Nice. Um, my number eight is John Wick chapter four, which is I, for my money, the best action movie of the year. Again, I think we talked about this a little bit last week on our underrated show, uh, that I don't always feel comfortable calling something the best action movie of the year. Cause I know there's like a lot of international stuff or DTV stuff that could be better. So I'll, I'll amend it to the best Hollywood action movie of the year. And that's um, high praise because the Mission Impossible movie 
is no slouch. So good. Uh, I love that they made The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. They were just like, well, let's make an epic John Wick movie. Let's go all in on the world building. Uh, let's have Scott Adkins in uh, in prosthetics as a heavyset man for no good reason than just because it's outlandish. Um, we talked last week about the stair sequence, which is about as good an action sequence as you're going to see in a movie this year. But that's, you know, the sixth or seventh action set piece in this amazing two and a half hour epic um, I'm so happy that Keanu Reeves, an actor that I have loved since first seeing him in 1987, roughly, um, has found these vehicles that ha- have allowed him back into the public consciousness that people have embraced how great Keanu Reeves can be in the right role, um, and that people seem to really love – I was going to say people love the John Wick universe, but that's not true because nobody watched that fucking Continental show, thank goodness. But people love the John Wick movies, and for good reason. They take action movies and elevate them to like this weird abstract art level, and uh, I just think they're brilliant. I I like – that you can go back and watch the first one and it's all, you almost can't conceive of how you got to chapter four from chapter one, even though it's one long continuous story. The but they're sort of, not, they're not just giving you the same thing over again. No, it's like uh, Russian nesting dolls. Every time a new one comes out, it's bigger and grander. Yeah. The first one feels much more like a, a DTV movie compared to sort of the epic scope of chapter four. Uh, I just think it's brilliant. My only caveat would be, um, both of you have heard the phrase, comedian's comedian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought some of the Kindler's appeal, and I loved it, I loved it, um, is that it's an action movie, I think, specifically made for action movie fans. Mm -hmm. And I think more casual fans might find some of it, let's say, self-indulgent. It's as if we unearthed an MGM musical that has 24 musical numbers instead of eight. And each one is a half an hour long. (laughs) Now I would welcome that. I I don't know who else would. Um, It's, it's the same thing I always say about Bollywood films. It's an evening's entertainment. It's a full course dinner. It's not a little 90 minute, injection of fun it's it's the whole thing and that's one of the things i liked about in fact one of the things that makes that staircase scene work and the film is worth seeing only for the staircase scene it's so good is that it does go on for so long that's the point that's that's the reason it's fun and funny i like uh that it's even though it's the fourth movie in the series, it's still introducing interesting characters. Yeah. Um, like there's new henchmen and villains and side assassins who are after their own, you know, goals. And they're just, it's like watching, it's like the best of a video game where it's like these new boss levels and stuff, but like you're equally (laughs) excited about them as you are John Wick when they're, doing their business and everything. And then I I also love kind of what you said, Patrick, where it's like they've elevated to this like 
Museum of Contemporary Art sheen to them, <laughs> which is like jarring for like a Lionsgate movie. And by yeah. the way, I really, that's what I call when Charlie Sheen is at the MCA, I call it Museum of Contemporary Art sheen. That's not a good joke. Um, anyways. <laughs> He's all like, where the horse? I really, yeah, it's like third floor. I'll see it. Um, He's like, wait a minute, where's the wine and cheese? Second floor. And then he's just going back and forth. Um, That's his staircase sequence. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I got the joke back. No, I just, I I really like this movie a lot. Um, As you hinted with the Continental thing, like my only drawback, but I have this with several action movies this year. Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, John Wick Chapter 4. There's so much table setting and so much world building that I just wish it was maybe a half hour shorter and like maybe quicker to get going. But that's it. It's a minor quibble. Yeah, I brought up how much I loved it. And Adam, you were talking about the side characters. I didn't even bring up Donnie Yen, who's like one of the coolest characters and one of the best performances of the year. Mm -hmm. Um and again, it speaks to that whole good, the bad, and the ugly sort of triptych that the movie has with uh, Skarsgård. Who is it? Bill uh, Skarsgård? Yeah. As the villain. And he's great the as the villain. The yeah. I mean, everybody's great who shows up in this movie. Uh, it rules. Next. Uh, what are we at? Seven? My number seven is my pick for the best action movie of the year, and that's Expendables 4. Brilliant. Um, Wait a minute. <laughs> I haven't laughed harder in a theater <laughs> than when Adams. Barney Ross faked his death, and we saw a corpse in an airplane that looked mm-hmm. like it had been dead for 15 years. <laughs> um, cut to them having his corpse arm as a vigil in a, the Expendables bar. Yeah, jumbo but what they shrimp. what they didn't show was if you grab the jumbo shrimp's arm in the bar. Yeah, he possesses you for two minutes. <laughs> oh yeah, it definitely has to talk to me. Uh, yeah, I literally laughed so hard that I blacked out. <laughs> and for that reason, it's hard for me to say that it's not the worst. It's the worst movie of the year, but it is. It's clearly the worst. Movie it's of the, the year. worst movie of the year. Uh, so my my for real number seven is. Theater Camp. Uh, okay. So, Theater Camp. Um, I put in my Business Awards article that Bottoms was the funniest movie of the year. I It's so close. But, like, I think Theater Camp, for me, is just, like, a tiny bit funnier um, after rewatching it. I love that, on one hand, it's clearly making fun of theater kids. And on one hand, it's also selling you on, don't you understand that they're right? This is amazing. Um, and I love so many of the performances. It's kind of the brainchild of like Ben Platt, Noah Galvin, and Molly Gordon. They each had they act in it. Um, some of them are co-directors, co-writers. Um, it obviously feels very lived in. It's just such it's got <laughs> such good cheer to it, but also is so funny. Um, and I love just kind of the weird satire things like that. One of the plays is called like a Hanukkah divorce and stuff like that. Um, I love that the, the story, um, that they're doing for the main play about Amy Sedaris theater camp owner who's in a coma 
that they set up the Zoom in their incorrect operating room. So, like, the entire show is played for the wrong woman. And then she is, like, raving about it. I just think it's so funny. Um, I love the tear stick moments about, do you want to be the Lance Armstrong of acting? All of it's great. Molly Gordon's amazing. I love her so much. Um, And, yeah, it was just, I was shocked just by kind of, how sweet it was while also being super funny. It kind of had like a lot of Wet Hot American Summer in it, a lot of Hamlet too in it. Um, It's very well edited. So like there's all these insert shots and reaction shots that are like really funny and kind of accelerate the humor. Um, But uh, yeah, this is one on like a repeat viewing. I wasn't sure if it was going to stay on my list, but I actually like bolstered it up a bit on that second watch. I wondered as I watched it, because I loved it as well. If part of my reaction is that some of the film is really inside in that I was a theater kid in high school Mm -hmm. and then later become the sponsor and I'm taking kids to theater fest in Illinois, which is as close as you're going to get to theater camp in the movie. And I thought almost like your reaction to baseball movies, Adam, yeah. I wondered if my reaction was unique just because of my life. Probably, yeah. The scene where Molly Gordon has to defend that that's the voice she's been using all along is yeah. one of the funniest scenes in a movie this year. And the movie that it kind of reminds me of, Adam, based on what you were saying is Role Models. Because Role Models, oh, yeah. your way into Role Models is isn't LARPing stupid and yeah. isn't not to bring up kiss uh but isn't kiss lame you know and then throughout the movie it's like oh no larping is awesome it's super fun and kiss is really entertaining and theater camp is aren't these people goofs for taking this so seriously and by the end it's like oh no this is awesome these people are so talented what they do is amazing yeah yeah their play at the end is just so fantastic yeah. and like yeah, like the the guy Noah Gelfin, like dressing in drag as Amy Sedaris's character. It's like so moving, and it's like almost funnier because you're catching yourself being like so moved by like his songs to like a baby, like to a crib and stuff. <laughs> it's it's great, and I love all the stuff with um, like just the humor about like the straight kid outing himself at yeah. the end of the yeah. play, <laughs> and like they catch him playing football, and he's just like, "I was just proving to the kids that." We <laughs> it's really funny and again the trick is and and i've said this about a lot of films it's easy to come out on one side it's much harder to make a movie where it's ridiculous and moving right because things can be both right um that is also streaming on hulu those of you who have hulu uh now have a couple movies to watch because that is streaming as well jay bones your seven sir so my number seven movie i was completely unaware of and then people started talking about it on the twitter machine people i love and i said what's this it's playing across the street and i went and i could not believe what i got compared to what i expected it's godzilla minus one and we will talk about it in a bit. We will continue to table it because it's also my seven. Uh, but we'll talk about it later. 
So Adam, we're at your six. Oh, okay. Um, my six is uh, the surprise of the year for me, and maybe the most rewarding movie of the year for me. <laughs> or actually, hold on, I got to do the joke pick. Hold on. Okay. Oh, oh and yeah. That is oh, I thought that was the introduction. So did I. So did I. Yeah. I, 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 I lost track of my own. He's leading us down the primrose path again. <laughs> so, what I just said applies to my real choice, but my joke choice is. Operation Fortune, Ruse de Gear. Oh yeah, Guy Ritchie, one of two. I oh what I expected a lot of Operation Fortune, but like, wow, was I surprised by how much the Ruse de Gear got to me. <laughs> Come for the Operation Fortune, stay for the Ruse de Gear. Yeah, like it, I didn't even know what it was, and then I walked out of the theater with it being one of my top three mantras of 2024. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, my. My number six is Mobland, which I say is like the biggest surprise and the most edifying pick of the year for me because I am such a big John Travolta fan. And this is it played in theaters and I did see it in theaters, but it is by and large like a direct to video Saban films programmer. And finally, I felt like he was punching weight in the Nicolas Cage territory where like he's like this is his pig or this is kind of so i i was really shocked um the movie is like a val luton version of a saban film it's amazing like you just see the title of it and you expect it to be paradise city and yet it's not it's like nicholas maggio is the writer director and he clearly is like a filmmaker to watch um i think that he does a great job of sort of doing a pastiche of like no country for old men collateral and killing them softly. Um, everybody in the movie is like upping their game. They're taking it really seriously. Like Steven Dorff is terrific in it. It's like my favorite performance of his in a, in a long time. Travolta is very good. Even Kevin Dillon's very good. Um, and I, I didn't mean to say it like, in that weird <laughs> Kevin Dillon is very good. Even um, Kevin Dillon is yeah. surprisingly um, believable. Is Travolta better than he is in that credit card commercial where he plays Disco Santa? See, I like that, but yes, he's better. <laughs> oh, no, no, I no. I, that's my favorite commercial of the year. I mean, I saw hey, somebody tweet something about God, how there's never in. been a bigger fissure between. Good. Yeah, there's never been like a bigger fissure between like what a movie actually is and its reputation than Saturday Night Fever. Where everybody <laughs> thinks it's like fun Santa disco movie now. <laughs> where there's um, suicide and the and the things about condoms. Yeah, but Mobland, I mean, like, it, it reminded me of, like, one false move at times where it's, like, this mm-hmm. great throwback to this kind of, like, small-scale, you know, crime movie and, like, a hole-in-a-wall town and everything like that. And um, I love the arc of the Steven Dorf character. You first you think he's just Anton Chigurh, but like as the movie progresses, especially in the third act, it turns into something else and like a character's calling him out on his bullshit and like how that affects him. Um I just really loved it. And I hope that um John Travolta continues working with Nicholas Maggio because I think he's, you know, produced his best movie since shit, I don't even know. I mean, like it's it's been a really long time that I've seen the Travolta movie this good. Yeah, I watched it again, knowing that Adam was such a big fan and that it would probably show up on his top ten list. Um, and 
even with, I think, elevated expectations, because Adam, you went into it expecting DTV Travolta. Yeah. And you had come out of it. I remember at flashback, you saying like, no, actually, it's really good. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. So I went into it expecting to like it because Adam was such a fan. I was pretty knocked out by it. Um, I think the title does it no favors. I think mm-hmm. the poster art does it no favors. Yeah. Um, it's just Travolta's face in a cowboy hat and the title Mobland means nothing. Um, generic title. Yeah, it's it's a bummer. American metal, which is just as generic as. Yeah, not great either. I don't have a better title to suggest to Nicholas Maggio, but I know Adam, when we did Dana Buckler's show, he had talked to Travolta about it and said like, yeah, they did that movie with the same budget and the same 10 day schedule that they shoot Mm -hmm. all these Saban movies for. And it's incredible what he's able to get. Um, The photography at times, it feels like a Terrence Malick movie. Steven Dorff's character is so interesting. He has that whole scene with who's the actor that I don't love in the Shiloh lead? Shiloh Fernandez. Shiloh Fernandez. Um, who's good in the movie? I just have yeah. liked, I've not liked him and stuff in the past, but um, they have a scene in a car where they just kind of talk about like how you choose to live your life. That is so interesting and like has no place in a DTV, you know, movie of this quote-unquote caliber but it's just it's so much better than what you're expecting um travolta is really good he's he's kind of has a supporting role he's kind of the tommy yeah. lee jones character if this is no country for old men it nothing against travolta but i would argue that the reason to watch it is really the steven dorf stuff i would agree uh, with that he's the performance of the movie for sure. yeah and just the most interesting character although travolta has an interesting arc as well mm-hmm. um and we learn things about both the Shiloh Fernandez character and the Travolta character that inform. I know, Adam, you had said, like, you missed it the first time. There was. Uh, a, yeah. I, so I saw it very sleep deprived because yeah. it was during flashback weekend. And the only time I could fit it in was like literally like a 9 a.m. show. And then uh, I missed that one character had a terminal illness and another character had another very severe illness. And that like informs so much of yeah. like, their decisions. But even ignoring that, I still thought that the movie was great. Like I just saw, like I remember seeing it in the theater and I saw like in the opening scenes that like they were drag racing with kind of like, you know, like old muscle cars and stuff. And I was like, ooh, this is gonna be like trading paint good. And then I didn't <laughs> I and then I just had no idea what I was in store for. And it was it was so much better than I thought it would be. It I I don't know. Like I don't think it's um as good as say one false move because that's a fantastic movie, but like this reminded me so much of something like that, where it's just this low level crime independent movie that just came out of nowhere and just blew me away. And the, the classification I think makes sense, even though, like you said, it's not as good as one false move, but it has a real sense of place that movies of this budget level and uh, that they don't usually have. Yep. Wasn't Steven Dorff recently in a Western where he was the best thing in the movie? Old Henry. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of those cases where, and I'm pretty good at this, not as good as as the two of you, but it took me about 20 minutes to realize, oh, my God, that's Stephen Dorff. 
Old Henry was last year, right? Maybe, maybe last year or two years, years ago. ago. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. we're dad, you don't have to sell us on Steven Dorf. We're all down for Steven Dorf. <laughs> I'm all for his Mar Marlboro man era. 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 <laughs> um, yeah, good stuff. Also streaming on Hulu. So after you finish this episode is sponsored by Hulu. Mm -hmm. After you finish the episode, please subscribe to Hulu and you can watch all of our top 10 movies. Uh, Jay Bones, we're at your six. My sixth could have been one of my most anticipated movies of the year, really. And it made me angry that it took me, it took so long to see it because it was, you know, released for the holidays. And that is Poor Things, which we will discuss soon. My six kind of took me by surprise because while I have liked most of the movies on this filmmaker's comeback journey. I haven't responded to any of them the way that I responded to this one. And that is M night Shyamalan's knock at the cabin, which is an adaptation of a Paul Tremblay novel called a cabin at the end of the world. Um, and again, I I've been on board for Shyamalan. He's not one of my guys to the extent that he's one of your guys, Adam, but I I've been on board for his comeback I have enjoyed most of the movies that he has made since kind of flaming out in the mid two thousands. Um, but I thought knock at the cabin was really on another level. I think just in terms of the filmmaking, in terms of specifically the Dave Batista performance, but I do think everybody in the movie is good. Um, I love how much he's borrowing from Jonathan Demi in terms of, and it's something he's been doing his whole career, but in terms of the way he frames faces looking directly and talking directly to the camera mm -hmm. uh, is intimate in a way that this story I think requires because it's essentially about it's almost a home invasion story which I don't like uh, but it's a couple with their adopted daughter and these people show up in their house and say one of you needs to sacrifice the other otherwise the world is going to end and where it goes from there, I won't say, but I give the movie so much credit. And I know much of this credit also belongs to Paul Tremblay for having the idea in the first place mm -hmm. um, for committing to a lot of the apocalyptic shit. You know, there's like uh, planes falling out of the sky and we start to learn more and more initially via newscasts. But at a certain point, we go outside and see some of it for ourselves what they're saying is going to happen actually starts to happen. And I just think most movies would try to leave it obtuse on purpose. Well, were they right? Well, would bad stuff have happened if, you know, these characters didn't do what they end up doing or, mm -hmm. um, again, I always, I, I always point the finger back at Kevin Smith and red state where he just chickens out of showing the apocalypse. And I think this movie puts its money where its mouth is and does the thing that Shyamalan does so well, which is scaling back a huge story mm -hmm. to being about the very specific experiences of a few characters. So, Signs, of course, being sort of the the best example of this. It, it's a, this big alien invasion story, 
told through the eyes of this one rural family. Mm-hmm. And this is the end of the world told through the eyes of these, this one couple and their adopted daughter and um, the, the, the people who invade their house. Uh, so it makes this huge story feel so much more real, so much more believable and so much more intimate than it otherwise would have. The thing that you have no patience for, I would now like to name on F this movie, and we should call it the turn of the screw trope, because at the end of that short story, the author turns to the reader and says, I don't know. Were there ghosts? You tell me. And in the words of Stephen King, you can scare people for a really long time with what's behind the door, but eventually you have to open the door. And you're giving Shyamalan credit, as would I, I haven't seen it yet, for opening the door. If you're going to play the game, you should go there. In fact, when you were talking about the film, it it made me think of, um, oh my God, uh, Mimi Rogers at the end of the world. The Rapture. The Rapture. The Rapture. And how impressed we always were that that movie goes there. It doesn't just dangle it as a premise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like Knock at the Cabin. It's top five Shyamalan for me. Mm-hmm. I also, and I, I've said this before, and I don't mean it as a negative, but it was like the first Shyamalan in a while where I felt like I didn't have to apologize by recommending it or like qualify it by saying like, well, I'm a big Shyamalan guy. Right. So dot, dot, dot. Um, well, I just think it's a really ago, solid movie. A long time ago, I got off the Shyamalan train, but maybe I will buy a ticket to Knock at the Cabin. Well, like I enjoyed a lot of old, but old is a fucking mess. Like, and this movie is not a mess. This movie is very assured. Um, it is streaming on, I think, Prime and Peacock. Not Hulu. Not Hulu, unfortunately. Our average. Yeah. So much for our sponsorship. Um, but it's it's terrific, and it's one of those that got on my list early on in the year because it came out. In what, April? Yeah. February, I think. Oh, for real? Okay, so yep. it got on my list very early this year and stayed on the whole year, basically. Um, and it's one of maybe two movies on my whole list that I actually rewatched just to see, like, does this belong here? And it it absolutely does, even after seeing the movie and knowing the quote-unquote twists. You know, mm-hmm. not that this movie is interested in twists, but... Um, knowing where it goes, I think it absolutely still holds up. And I should say that I have not read the book, but I know the movie differs from the end of the book. I'm kind of more interested in what the movie does. Yeah, I would agree. But that's for you to discover should you watch the movie and or read the book. Adam, you're number five. We're in the top five now. Woohoo! Um, so when I sat down for my number five, I wished I would only see four other movies better than this. And <laughs> Disney's wish gave me my answer to yeah, that yeah, yeah. wish. Anyways, my number five is <laughs> Sanctuary. I didn't see it, unfortunately. Okay. I, but it is on Hulu for everyone listening. <laughs> <laughs> they call me Mr. Hulu. Um, so I... 
yeah, I this is this movie's so good that it made me completely forget about my Christopher Abbott allergy, and he's fifty percent <laughs> of the movie because it's just him and Margaret Qualley in a hotel room. Um, she he is kind of like a mogul to be. He's due to inherit kind of like a Hilton type of empire, um, and she's a dominatrix that he's been working with. Um, to satisfy kind of his peculiar needs and, um, you know, just kind of things. And then he decides to dissolve the relationship and it sort of escalates from there. And it turns into this weird, like kind of two-hander character dynamic type of thing, like game one-upsmanship, so to speak, and things like that. But it also takes some really interesting turns other than that. Um, I was just blown away by how involving it was it never felt like like the worst version of this is something like richard Linklater's tape where you're just like fuck i need to get out of this room <laughs> um i never felt this way i always was happy to be watching um these two kind of banter with one another um i like where what it has to say about relationships and not being embarrassed about asking for what you need from relationships. And um, even if it's something that's other people outside of that two person dynamic wouldn't understand. Um, I like what it's saying about how just because you're in a position to be a certain thing, doesn't mean that you have to be that like, you don't always have to inherit a mantle that like you feel ill, ill equipped for. Um and Margaret Qualley just like completely delivers on the promise of her performance from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She's now an actor who I will watch in almost anything mm -hmm. because I just find her so interesting. And she's so like alive and wired and direct and alert in, in a creepy way sometimes, but that almost like makes the performance better. Um, it also has the best final scene I've seen in any movie this year. It's take something that's been kind of um, I don't know, not acidic, but just sort of like sharper edged and turns it into like this really beautiful romance. And um, I, this is another movie where I watched it a second time and it got the Hulu bump because it was <laughs> even better on the second viewing than it was on the first. I've become such a big fan of Margaret Qualley that my only quibble with poor things is that I wish she was given more to do. Yeah. Although, you know, it's it's obviously a supporting performance, but I like her so much, I wish she was in that movie more. Yeah. Bottom line, this movie taught me that I probably should and want to be dominated. <laughs> interesting. Interesting life choice at this juncture. Yeah. <laughs> this is very exciting, everyone. The 2023 show where Adam reveals he's a sub. Better late than never. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, this was one that I've just been trying to get to for weeks, and life or other movies got in the way. I knew that it was going to be on your list, Adam, and I desperately wanted to see it. I promise I will watch it because I do really want to see it. Um, cool. Christopher Abbott aside, this brings us, JB, to your number five. My number five, I saw. Not knowing anything, which, of course, is the ideal way to see any movie, if I can give anyone on the podcast a suggestion. And we ventured forth to Burbank, and we saw a dream scenario, which we will discuss presently. 
more and more I'm finding, I think because I went to a movie theater less this year, I didn't see as many trailers, which means I was going into stuff knowing nothing. All more and more often. Yeah. So like holdovers, I never saw a trailer. Uh dream scenario, I never saw a trailer. American fiction, I never saw a trailer. I just went into these movies blind, not knowing what they were even really about. And it's a good way to see a movie. My number five is higher up somewhere, and you could probably guess if you heard last week's show, uh, that it will not be on JB's list, but my number five is Oppenheimer, which we will come back to. Adam, your number four. Uh, so last year, my number four was Terrifier 2. And I saw a movie this year that makes Terrifier 2 look like bullshit. And that's Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Oh, nice. Taking it up a notch. <laughs> All what of these. Winnie uh... the Pooh was a fucked up killer. All yeah. of these, all of these end of the year newscasts trying to summarize the year lately have been mentioning the uh, copyright thing that's going to happen today. Yeah, and um, because Steamboat Willie Mickey enters the public domain, so get ready for that slasher film. But all these news reports are pointing to Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, because Winnie the Pooh entered the public domain earlier because of the books. And that's how they were able to make that masterpiece. So how long is it going to be before we get Steamboat Slasher Willie? The Grinch is not in the public domain. So how did they make the mean one? Maybe they just changed the likeness enough. Okay. Where, yeah. Cause I think there is rules to that. Cause didn't they do that with the monster squad where like, you yeah. can't yeah. have it look like Dick Smith or is, right. is it Dick Smith? That's why the creature looks so different in the Monster Squad, because they wanted to avoid universals. But having not seen the mean one, the fact that it's called that, do they use the G word? Maybe not. Okay. Uh, You mean great? (laughs) Yes. Um, My number four is Patrick's number five, Oppenheimer. Go ahead, Adam. Okay. Um, it's higher on your list. I feel like you should have the the floor. All right. Well, I got a toggle to my Google Doc. <laughs> I don't know, that um, sounds like code for masturbate. <laughs> yeah, we found um, him in his bedroom toggling to his Google Doc. It's the best thing I've ever seen. I've been in police work for 23 years. I call my of... I call my dick the mean one. I'm trying to think of which of my top 10 I masturbated to the most this year. <laughs> I'm guessing Sanctuary. It was probably one on Hulu. Just to guess. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Oppenheimer is my favorite Nolan movie, I think, ever. Um, I didn't know for sure the first time I saw it, but I think now it's just my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. Um I think it's sort of like a good coronation type of performance for Killian Murphy, like just an actor that we've always liked, but like he's never really kind of had like a showcase uh, spot like this in a movie of this level. Um, I love that it's a movie that has a big cast where like everybody's a star and like they're using that our history with that person's screen persona as kind of shorthand for us understanding a big litany of characters that we need to get used to and quickly figure out where they're coming from. Um, 
including actors that we haven't seen in a while, like Josh Hartnett and things like that. Um, uh, Ruse Daguerre, hello. Ruse I think Daguerre, that's definitely yeah. true of Matt Damon, that he's used in a way for shorthand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I love the structure of the movie. I think this is so much more successful in terms of like how they cut it up and like accelerate it towards the end than something like Dunkirk, which I think is like, maybe needlessly complicated and confusing by the way that it's edited. But I think the Nolan kind of, you know, aesthetic works better for this. Um, I like that the ramifications of building the device are given their due in the last act. And that kind of is what the movie becomes about. It becomes about that and kind of like power abuse by the unsignificant, the insignificant uh, folks kind of in the powers that be in governments. Um, I like the whole kind of angle that like Oppenheimer is putting himself through this hearing because like this is his way of paying penance is just to get flailed by the court of public opinion, by the court of, uh, of you know, the government that's putting him through this hearing. Um, and yeah, it just reminded me a lot of uh, movies like Oliver Stone used to make where it was like these big like dramas with huge casts and they were ambitious and they weren't being put at service of like Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2. Um, so it was just kind of a good callback to those. And I loved the Robert Downey Jr. character's arc where it's just this guy who can't get out of his own way because he just thinks that everyone's talking about him when at the end of the day, he's just a guy who, you know, he's the classic, like, pick, your ups, your, pick yourself up by the bootstraps and ambition will get you so far. But he's a man of, like, really kind of no ideas or importance. And he just can't handle that. And the world has to suffer because he feels slighted. Obsessed with the idea that Einstein slighted him. Now, Oppenheimer left me cold and that's yeah. on me. But the thing I really liked was that it sets up a dichotomy between science and politics, and politics is public opinion and the vagaries of the way people feel, and science ideally is about the truth. So the one thing I took away from Oppenheimer that I really liked was, as long as he was on board for the weapon that he built, he was a national hero. The minute he begins to doubt what it was that he did, that's when he falls out of favor and people begin to pillory him. Mm -hmm. I thought that was the heart of the movie, and I wish that had been explored more. Yeah, I thought I see him. I thought it was explored actually quite a bit. I thought the whole movie was kind of about that. I so appreciate that it it works as both this character study of Oppenheimer, but in a much bigger way that it's about bigger ideas than any movie this year. You know. And I, I'm excited for the dust to settle around it a little bit. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with the Oscar race or, you know, if this is going to be Christopher Nolan's year or what. But the movie did get so caught up in first Barbenheimer and mm -hmm. then it's box office success and it's a movie for adults and people still want these movies and Robert Downey Jr. Maybe he'll win an Oscar we were talking about so many things other than kind of what the movie is about mm -hmm. that I think people kind of miss how good it is <laughs> um, that, mm -hmm. 
And, and again, it's a big that it's a big budget American movie about history and ideas. Right. And and 15, 20 years ago, Adam, as you pointed out with your comparison, to Oliver Stone, like a movie like Oppenheimer, while it would still remain a very good example of the kind of movie that gets made regularly, like maybe wouldn't stand out the way it does in 2023 because more movies like it were being made. And now it's this fucking unicorn. Um yeah, I just think it's I think it's so good at exploring the holy shit what have we done uh yeah. of it all. Um I I don't know if it's my favorite Nolan yet, but it's in the top 5 for sure. Uh this was my number 5, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um yeah, it's it's just it's great to have because I haven't really loved a Nolan movie since Inception in 2010. And it's nice to have a Christopher Nolan movie that I can sort of root for again. Yeah, I agree. And also, I, I really like that my favorite biopics are ones that use a person's life as a thesis for something. Yeah. So um, and I think that Oppenheimer does that where you could easily kind of transpose the atomic bomb to the internet or something like that, or like where it's this thing that better us than them created, but like, it's going to cause this ripple effect where like, it's going to get out of control. And then also like the Strauss character that Robert Downey Jr. plays is such a proxy for so many people and in positions of power where it's just about, am I getting the accolades that I deserve? And it's not about the better, the the greater good at all for anyone other than themselves. Yeah. Um, all right, right on. So JB, we're at your four. My four <clears throat> may have been the last movie I saw in the calendar year. And my God, am I glad that I saw it? Because if anything, the trailer, which isn't bad, does not sell what this movie is at all. Hmm. And it's called The Iron Claw. This is one I actually did see a trailer for, and I think they were right to market it the way that they did. Because I think if they had marketed the movie that it truly is, it would have kept people away. And um, it's just extraordinary in so many ways. And Adam, you were just talking about biopics and the way that you like the way that you would prefer a biopic would go about its business. And it seems to me, as opposed to the biopics that came out this year that I, of which I was not a fan, uh, the maker of the iron claw took the time to sit back and say, what is this film really about? It's not about the world of wrestling and it's not even about the specific characters um, it's about something else. It's about something bigger and it's about something greater. And it's about something we can all identify with. Um, it's the story of the uh, Von Erich wrestling family, this wrestling dynasty that was started by the father and to uh, curry favor with the father, who was something of a taskmaster. Um, all of the sons in one way or another went into the wrestling business um, and achieved a level of fame. But um, in this speaks to what Patrick was talking about with the trailer that it might've kept some people away. 
if the trailer revealed just what a tragedy this story is at the end of the day. I even noticed when the actors were doing talk shows, they tried to stay away from. It's almost like the publicist was saying, "Okay, you can say this, this and this, but try to avoid this, this and this. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, I felt I had an in because at a certain age, my son was the biggest wrestling fan on Earth. And I became immersed by proxy in the whole world of professional wrestling. But uh, not only is the recreation of that time period amazingly accurate. I mean, I would compare it to Dazed and Confused that I'm watching the film and it takes place at a time when I was alive. And I wondered how they got the clothes and the hairstyles so right because movies so often get it wrong. Um, The performances are amazing, specifically Zac Efron and Jeremy Allen White as two of the Von Erich brothers. Um, I think it's the film that I found most emotionally devastating of the year. Um, Maybe because it's a story of fathers and sons. Maybe it's because it's the story of brotherly relationships. It just just wrecked me. Um, And I wasn't alone in the theater. In fact, at one point, someone in the theater said something like, oh, it's going there like out loud. So I don't know if they just saw where it was going or if they were familiar with the Von Erich story. I don't know. Um, Of all the films I saw this year, I found The Iron Claw to be the most emotionally um, involving and the most emotionally draining. There's sad shit all over our top 10 lists, whether it's holdovers or past lives or Godzilla um, but there's nothing sadder in any movie this year than Zac Efron saying, I used to be a brother near the end of the Iron Claw. Yeah. And I think his performance, his physical transformation, uh, what he's able to do in the movie in a lesser year for movies would be one of the biggest stories of the year. Because we love to find somebody who used to be this Disney kid and he was sort of this bimbo and now he's the serious actor and he's insane. He's so ripped. It's scary. Um, There's so many marketing angles that they could go with to build up Zac Efron to be an awards contender or whatever. And I do think that and I, I haven't paid attention to much of how the movie's doing or what noise it's making, but I do feel like it's getting a little bit lost in the end of the year shuffle and his performance in particular. But I do think he's incredibly good in the movie doing something that's not showy and that's really, really hard. And if it gets lost in the shuffle, that's a tragedy of itself because the filmmakers are so accomplished. There's a scene at the end where the Zac Efron character is watching his two sons toss a football to each other. It's the same. It's I used to be a brother. It's the same scene. And we know exactly what's going through his head without any of the usual Hollywood round shit hammer of obviousness. Like they have Lily James walk in. I bet I know what you're thinking. (laughs) I would be okay with that because I just want Lily James to speak in a Texas accent. Lily Lily James is in the film and she too is excellent. There's a scene at a wedding where the brothers do a line dance and someone posted on Twitter this week, you won't find anything more Texas than the line dance scene in the iron claw. Um, Yeah. I heard them say on blank check 
that Lily James could have chemistry with a lamppost. And I've always <laughs> like that sense where I'm just like, yeah, like everyone works with her and stuff like that. Um, but the thing that I liked about, about Iron Claw especially is I was scared. There's a scene at the wedding where somebody's throwing up and you see a certain thing. Mm. And I was terrified, like, oh, I don't think I'm going to be able to watch the rest of this movie because yeah. I knew kind of where this was going. And I give credit to Sean Durkin by finding a way to make it very sad, but also not make it unwatchable sad. Yeah, It's not tragedy porn. Yeah, it's not tragedy porn. It's not nihilism. Um, it's not like reaping any type of excitement from this tragedy and i i like i like that the movie leaves elements of hope um healing things of that sort um within the movie um it's really good yeah i gave the film a lot of credit i don't know if i can talk about this without spoilers but there's a scene at the end where you think maybe the filmmakers are going too far and then you realize it's what another character is thinking and then it makes perfect sense. And it's not this naked grab for your heartstrings. It's what another character is envisioning. And I give the film so much credit for being smart enough to do that. um, And not taking us to jazz heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My number four JB was your number five. And that is Dream Scenario, the best of the six Nicolas Cage movies that came out <laughs> in 2023. We talked about it a little bit on last week's show because I had said that, you know, the movie's getting no, there's no conversation around this movie at all. And part of it may be the Nicolas Cage of it all that he's just been written off. And part of it may be that it looked like a Charlie Kaufman or a Spike Jones movie. Uh, the premise of the movie is that Nicolas Cage is just sort of a schlubby college professor and suddenly everyone in America starts dreaming about him and it makes him very famous overnight and sort of where things go from there. And it too has one of the saddest shots, uh, one of the saddest ending shots of a movie this year, I thought. Um, But it has a lot to say about cancel culture which i know a lot of people have a problem with the few people that i have heard talk about this movie didn't like that aspect of the film i thought it was actually kind of interesting in terms of what it had to say about how we treat celebrity in america um it has a lot to say about dreams and fantasies um one of my favorite sequences was a character who has been dreaming about cage tries to make the dream a reality and the film is suggesting that might not be something you want to do. Oh, it's, it's spectacularly it, uncomfortable. Oh, what, uh, one of the most uncomfortable scenes of the year. If anything, Dream Scenario showed me in one of these Nicolas Cage movies, what if everything in the film was on the level of the performance he always gives? Yeah. Because we're so used to there being six in a year. How do you tell them apart? Um I love how it 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 um, embraces its premise, but then goes on to explore what's next and what's next and what's next and the fact that it goes there. The scene that you're talking about where the character wants to explore a sexual fantasy um, and what happens and how 
Cage does or does not participate is also the moment at which I think this is right. I only saw it the one time at which the content of the dreams begins to turn. Yeah. And do you think that one has to do with the other? I don't know. Um, yeah, I didn't was, give it that much thought, but that's interesting. It was I was just favorite. concerned because my sub brain was like, I want to be in this. <laughs> it was one of my favorite Galula jokes of the year that at the beginning when his, when his appearance in the dreams is harmless um, how many times he's just in the background raking leaves. Mm-hmm. I thought that was just a wonderful way of, of putting it. Um, oddly enough, and if any of our listeners want to jump down the rabbit hole, there is some video on YouTube where there's a certain, there's like a drawing of a guy and many people report that they have seen this gentleman in their dreams. And once you see that, it might just be YouTube nonsense. Once you see the drawing, the drawing is vaguely disturbing and you start to wonder if you've dreamed about this guy. I wondered if that was part of the genesis of this film. I thought it just did a such a good job of marrying fantasy and reality without being too twee, for lack of a better word. All um, the dreams presented are very, not Hollywood dream sequences, but very real dream sequences. And I love, I don't think I'm spoiling anything. um, The fact that the wife's dream revolves around the big suit from the talking heads movie. Mm -hmm. Stop making sense because Mm -hmm. that's the kind of incongruous detail that does show up in dreams. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I was so into the movie and I was thinking, I'm like, while I was watching, I'm like this, would be in my top 10. The only thing that kind of bummed me out was I, and maybe it would fall apart if it didn't have this, but I haven't really kind of thought about it enough. I didn't like when they introduced like the commercials within the dream technology. I thought that that was an unnecessary addition, but it's a small part of the movie. And it just struck me as like, yeah, that's what they would do (laughs) as soon as, anybody came up with this we would figure out a way to monetize it and michael sarah gives a very clever understated knowing performance Mm -hmm. in in his role i really thought he was great yeah and patrick and i are both excited for when nicholas cage as this character is a guest at days of the dead I'm just excited that you have a Travolta in your top 10 and I have a Nicolas Cage in my top 10. It's a good year. Yeah, it is. A holiday show extended. <laughs> uh, top three, Adam. Let's have it. We're Number at three. the top three. Uh, so it's got to be my big fat Greek wedding three. I mean, come on. <laughs> Great screenplay. Bigger, fatter, Greeker. Didn't feel like they went to Greek with no to Greece with no plan. More tatsiki sauce. Yeah, it was it was just everything I wanted in a three. That's my number three. Uh, my three is this probably the closest to like a birth of a dragon, Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City pick. Um, it's somebody I used to know, which is an Allison Brie Amazon Prime original uh, romantic comedy that came out in February around Valentine's Day. 
And um, I'm quietly realizing just that when everybody talks about like the death of romantic comedy, it's like Alison Brie has been off to the side doing it for yeah. 10 years. Keeping it alive. This, yeah. And this is the best one. Um, and she kind of is doing a riff on uh, my best friend's wedding where she's in the Julia Roberts part, but it's just really sweet and it's funny and it takes place in Leavenworth, Washington, which is sort of a um, Bavarian village type town. So I just like, really like the milieu as it were. Mm. Um, and I don't know. It's, it's the movie other than bottoms that I just keep returning to because it makes me feel good. And I want to hang out with these characters um i love Haley joel osmond and danny pudi in this movie they're both really really funny osmond especially because he's playing like just a dope where like he's like you know for example like he'll be putting and he's just like beggar vance beggar vance, beggar vance. <laughs> or like he names his son brad pitt and he's just like that's my son over there his name's bradley pitt so and so and and then he goes, yeah, he's a little heartbreaker. And then the kid's just like, <laughs> just I don't know. I just think it's so cute and funny. And um, yeah, it's just like kind of a good like South by Southwest used to like be the home for these types of movies right, where right. it's like a little like Austin hip and everything like that. But it's really just testament to how much I love Allison Brie as a as a leading lady and. Um, you know, this spin me round, horse girl, sleeping with other people. She's just, she's been out there doing it as Brian McCaffrey or uh, would say. And uh, I, I, yeah, like I said, I think this is one that as long as Amazon Prime doesn't remove from its service, I uh, hint, hints, make a physical media version of this. Um, I'll keep returning to it. I just love it. I think it's really good. Yeah, I've been on Team Bree since the little hours. Yeah, she's good. Yeah. I saw this back in February. I don't remember all of it, um, but it definitely has like echoes of past lives in it too, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's like a, a woman trying to recapture a relationship that has since been, you know, yeah, really, yeah, expired. Um, I don't. If Allison Brie was interloping in my potential wedding, I don't know how you would be able to stand up to that pressure. Like <laughs> break off the wedding. <laughs> uh, awesome. I love that pick at that spot. Uh, this at one point, Adam, not to pull back the curtain too far could mm-hmm. have been your number one. Can you reveal why it is not? It was my number one. I texted this to Patrick from a McDonald's parking lot. <laughs> Um, but I retracted it because I said to myself, I can't have a Dave Franco movie at one. There it is. <laughs> uh, J Bones, you're three. My number three, um, is the holdovers. Okay. We'll come back to it. Um, my number three was, I think lower on both lists it's poor things Mm -hmm. was that adam what was that on your list that was eight and jb it was your five i six your six okay so this is its highest placement 
on the show, so we will talk about it. Um, Yorgos Lathamos has been a filmmaker I have appreciated and occasionally admired, but never loved. Uh, all of his movies, I thought, well, oh, that's interesting, but I I'm not have sure yet if to... he wants you to love him. Well, no, okay, but I just I haven't been able to find a way into his work. Yeah, really, I can see that. Killing of a Sacred Deer was probably the closest I've come, and even that, I was like, I get it. Everybody has a flat affect. Got it. Um, four things I loved, basically from start to finish. Um, I think it's very funny. I love the cinematography. I love, love, love all of the performances. I think Emma Stone is like next level great. Uh, but that's to say uh, nothing of the Mark Ruffalo performance, which I think is hilarious. The Willem Dafoe performance, which is great as sort of this Dr. Frankenstein character. Um I think where the movie goes the whole time it was it was weirdly enough not to get too like literary douchey it was reminding me of something like Candide mm-hmm. uh and where it gets to at the end I just was like I can't believe we got here from where we started um I know a lot has already been said you know this is a movie that's going to launch a thousand think pieces about female agency about feminism uh, about sex in movies, uh, because this movie has a lot to say about all of those things. Um, but I, I just, it, this, in a different year, this would have been my two or my one. I just, I think it's pretty perfect from start to finish, but it was on both of your lists. So, oh no, there's one other movie that's on all of our, no, there's two other movies that's on all of our lists. Um, but you guys weigh in. And I've been a fan since I saw The Lobster. And then post Poor Things, I finally caught up with Killing of the Sacred Deer. And not to be cynical, but it's almost as if Poor Things is everything he's ever been good at. But his representation sat down with him and said, you know, if we just tweaked these two little things, we would have a much bigger box office hit. Um, I thought for months that Lily Gladstone had a lock on best actress at the Oscars. But now I think she has serious competition um, from this film, because this, this is just the performance of a career. Uh, Mark Ruffalo has the weight on his shoulders that he's playing every man who's ever lived. (laughs) And that's what I appreciated about the performance. It is so well observed. If you talk to any woman after a breakup and say, what really drove you crazy about him and talk to a thousand women, those lists have been incorporated into Mark Ruffalo's <laughs> performance. Um, it's, it's just astounding. Um, even down to the smaller parts, um, the, the doctor student who's helping him and taking notes, I thought he was quite good. There were other actors that I wasn't as familiar with. Um, Willem Dafoe triumphs over that makeup mm-hmm. that could have uh, consumed a worse actor. Um, also, I think a measure of how great the film is, and it is a great film. Look at the main character at the beginning of the film and look at her at the end. And it's the rare film that shows us 
that big of a story arc and mm-hmm. that big of a change without it seeming contrived or false. Right. She gets where she gets, honestly, because of the events in the film that were shown. It's also yeah, not it's, a, it, I'm sorry, just real quick. It's it, not a foregone conclusion at the start of the film where she's going to end up. Most movies, we go in knowing where they're going to land. It's just a matter of how they get there. And I would argue that this movie, you don't necessarily know where it's going to go. And even if you think you do, I would suggest that the movie zags every time you think it's going to zig. Yeah. And it's also like, she comes to that growth as an evolution. It's not like there's this inciting incident. And then the next scene, it's like, feel the rain on your skin. And then she's like, all better. Um, the, but, um, the thing that I like about uh, the movie so much is like, you know, there's a development towards the end where you think like she's going to have her happily ever after. And then like an interloper comes in and she basically is like, I need to know this. Like, in order, like it's not uh, like my growth can't stop here. Like right. she's craving life experience and intelligence and finding out kind of where she came from originally. And I just find that like, so this is sort of the movie that I posit kind of against Barbie in a lot of ways of like where they underline feminism and Barbie. And in this one, I don't even think it's like just feminism. It's just that like, I'm not here to be a vessel for a man. Like I'm here to be a fully formed person. And I like that even like the so-called intellectuals that like Gerard Carmichael, she's just like, you're limited. Like, like there's more to this than just that. And like some of the stuff that you're thumbing your nose at is just because you're scared. And I like that she's, maybe it's because she's this Frankenstein monster. She has like the naive, it's almost like endorsing naivete, naive, naiveness, whatever. All right. I'm getting there. Naivete um, of like, just just it's like nike just do it just keep well, the film it. the film is certainly more in favor of her naivete yeah. than michael's easy ironing right. um another thing about poor things is it really made me wish that more of my enemies would be turned into goats <laughs> was i the only one who had that reaction it was good yeah i i also just like on a filmmaking perspective it's so specific mm-hmm. in like its look and design and its score is amazing. The production design, the costuming, I mean, everything about it is like, yeah. holy shit, this the, is the so original. The art direction makes it the lost Terry Gilliam film. Yeah. yeah. It's or, or like even that. like it, yeah, it's like um the best universal monster movies are like made not by Universal now. It's like <laughs> four things, the shape of water. But, like, it's got, I mean, this has production design just as good as, like, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which Mm -hmm. is, like, a high point because it was, like, coming off of Bram Stoker's Dracula and stuff. It looks just that good. Yeah. And then also I like what John was saying about just kind of Yoros Lanthimos. I I really like Killing of a Sacred Deer, but I saw that in a very specific way. I saw it back-to-back with the Florida Project. And by the time I was watching Killing of a Sacred Deer, I was just like laughing at everything because I was like, it was tragedy porn. And I was just like, I, I just broke. I would argue it's point. meant to be funny, but and it's, it's, it's super funny. Yeah. Um, but this is like, I, I know he's collaborating with Emma Stone a lot now, 
which I think is really good. And I think it benefits her because she's going to new levels in her career and taking chances. But I think it also benefits him a lot because he kind of eschews his anti stinker thing. Um, And this is like the first (laughs) time he's had a character where I feel like he really likes this person and wants the best for this person. Yeah. And I think that that's one of those elements that John maybe was alluding to that. Like, if you just added this, it goes down a lot easier. You can still have your cake, but also like eat it too. Mm -hmm. Well, you're absolutely right because I'm a big fan of the lobster, but it seems like those characters were created to suffer. Yeah. And I like that William Willem Dafoe burps bubbles and loves cocaine. I think that's, <laughs> that's, this is one of those movies where, like, I feel like if I got a chance to see it a second time, I would have had it higher in my ranking. But I, I just haven't gotten to it yet. And the Emma Stone character finds the bubbles delightful, but apparently everyone else finds them disgusting. <laughs> uh, this movie rules. Adam, you're number two. Uh, my number two is the 30th anniversary re-release of A Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> if you thought it was good 30 years ago. Yeah. Is this? What is, what is Adam's third pick? I say that because this is the first time I was able to stay awake throughout all of them. <laughs> um, no, my number two is The Holdovers, which I think is on all of our list, but lower positions, right? Correct. I had it at nine, and JB, and you had it at? At three. At three, okay. Yeah, I think it's so funny that Alexander Payne blanched at people calling it like a cozy movie because it's the coziest movie ever. Um, this is this is why I was folding my arms at the holdovers. Yeah. Because Alexander Payne makes it hard. Yeah, um, but I this is such a good throwback to Hal Ashby movies and like 70s last detail types of cinema. Um, Paul Giamatti like is one of those actors where I just take him for granted until he has another performance like he does in the holdovers. And I'm just like, he's one of the best actors working today. Um, Dominic Sessa, I think is really good, even though he looks exactly like Jimmy Shaker and will be in the remake of ransom as Gary Sinise's <laughs> part. Um, Divine, Divine Joy Randolph's performance really jumped out at me on the second viewing. I feel like I kind of took it for granted. And then I saw like how many awards she was winning and I really paid attention to what she was doing. And I think she's so good at not as being somebody in mourning, but like also definitely not wanting to play the victim and Mm -hmm. still seeming like, you know, like it's just an interesting kind of like portrayal of grief and like how people would want to be treated and how, and I and I love that it's not they don't they they focus on it enough, but they don't like make a big deal of the fact that like her going to see her family was like a big thing for like helping her get better. Yeah. Um but yeah, I mean like this is also just such a good holiday movie and hangout movie. Like I could easily see myself over, you know, the Christmas holidays coming back to this in future years. It reminded me of young adult novels that I enjoyed when I was a child, much like early Wes Anderson, mm-hmm. the, the, to a lesser extent, Rushmore, but to a greater extent, the Royal Tannenbaums, in that there are elements of the holdovers that are very much like uh, young adult mainstays, like The Pig Man by Paul Zindel or from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. 
um, I forget the author, or even Harriet the Spy, that not only does the film take place in the 70s, but it has a very 70s mentality to it. And and that's why I enjoyed the fact that you said that it reminded you of Hal Ashby. Um, part of that is the art direction, mm-hmm. which is sort of flawless. Um, but I think the heart of this film is the script and the performances, which are just which transcend the fact that, like I said, the first time I saw the trailer, I thought it was mismarketed in that the trailer was sort of saying, you will be charmed. You will, <laughs> your heart will be warmed. It will be. Um, so in, in a way, I thought it was selling a film that was worse than the film that we actually have, which is delightful. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, to go back to what we were saying about poor things, I, I hadn't seen a trailer for the movie, but knowing the films of Alexander Payne and sort of knowing Paul Giamatti's filmography, I sat down and the arcs and the relationships were to me a little bit of a foregone conclusion. I sat down kind of like, I kind of know where this movie will end up, but the getting there was so good and the performances were so good and the the Hal Ashby of it all, who's a filmmaker I've just really fallen in love with in the last like five years, um, won me over against my weird resistance to this movie, which I cannot explain. Um, just totally won me over. And I thought, uh, this was the movie that I couldn't wait to recommend to my mom. Yep. This also the best depiction of something that I've gone through so many times in life where it's like it's like this is happening I think I'm gonna have a new girlfriend in a week and then like something happens and you're like oh this was all in my head and I misread yeah. everything uh, and like the look on Giamatti's face is so strong in that moment I thought the film's exploration of Paul Giamatti's backstory makes it a lot more makes it a lot less sentimental than mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. um sold as and the fact that his backstory is so sad and yet is ameliorated by things that I don't want to spoil um but the scene in the liquor store where he finally tells the boy yeah. what happened back in college I think is one of the highlights of the film he's a real richard dreyfus in this one <laughs> I do think the movie is going to, or the this year, with a little bit of hindsight, is going to be compared favorably to something like 1999, because I think we have so many major filmmakers doing great work this yeah. year. Definitely. Uh, so it was nice to see an Alexander Payne movie that I could fully embrace again, just as I said about Yorgos Lathamos, just as I said about... M. Night Shyamalan, um, just as I'm about to say about my number two, but it was like this felt like the Alexander Payne of Sideways and Election. Uh, Obviously, it's less acidic than Election, but like I could finally wrap my arms around an Alexander Payne movie, which I haven't been able to do in a long time. Uh, Speaking of that, my number two is a welcome return from a filmmaker who only went off course for about one movie, but that is Sofia Coppola and her movie Priscilla. I did not love her last film, which was on the rocks, 
which was her, I think, experimenting with something a little bit more comedic and potentially commercial uh, for Apple TV. And it was a, a movie that was like just OK, not bad, but just OK and didn't feel like Sofia Coppola. And I feel like her response to that was, well, what if I made the most Sofia Coppola movie ever? And <laughs> that is Priscilla, uh, the story of Priscilla Presley's relationship and marriage and subsequent divorce from Elvis Presley played by Jacob Elordi. Um, it's I, I watched <laughs> the first 30 minutes of Baz Luhrmann's Elvis last night and my head was spinning and all I could think about was I want to watch Priscilla again, not this fucking thing because it's hard to watch the sort of myth making of Baz Luhrmann's Elvis after seeing Priscilla and seeing a very different side of Elvis. Um, Kaylee Spaney plays Priscilla Presley in one of those holy shit star making performances. Every detail of the movie is gorgeous and considered um, from the very opening shot of her feet landing on the carpet, like a baby being born um, through the ending. I will always love you sequence. Uh, I just thought the movie was so gorgeous. I thought it had so much to say, not just about Priscilla Presley and her life, but also what we do to young girls and or women in this country. Uh, about grooming, about Elvis's iconography, about celebrity. I just thought it was a movie with a ton of things on its mind. Um, again, not everyone will agree with me. Rob reviewed it for the site and was not a fan of this movie. Uh, I saw a very different movie from him. I just absolutely loved it. Well, at the very least, you know it's going to be honest because the Elvis Presley estate decried it. And it came directly from Priscilla Presley's book, Elvis and Me. Um, I I haven't seen it. Oh, it's so good. This is, weirdly enough, even though it's not in my top 10 or my honorable mentions, it's (laughs) a movie I'm happiest to see as high on your list because I do feel like a lot of, affection for it in a way that I it's sneaking up on me. Um, one thing that I was having trouble putting my finger on was um, I thought Kaylee Spaney's performance was so good, but I couldn't describe why I thought it was so good. And then I watched um, one of those like anatomy of a scene videos. And it was the scene where Elvis throws the chair at the wall. And then they show like her facial reactions, like when he's going to console her. And it's just like, eight different things going on at one time and her performance is so quiet and so still and it's because of like she's such a fish out of water and she's Mm -hmm. walking on eggshells um that's the performance that's what you're like looking for and she's so charismatic and just great in it and uh, like you said i you know i'm a huge sofia coppola fan as well so like just being in this world at this level is so great to see i love um you know, Rob had in his, I think, I don't remember if it was in his review, and I feel bad because this sounds like we're picking on Rob, but we're not. No, not at all. Like, um, he had said something where it's like a lot of scenes that just kind of fail to start or <laughs> like a story of like goes and fits and starts. And I think that's the movie. That's yeah, like it is saying like she's 
in a situation, and this is sort of true of like virgin suicides, lost in translation. It's a recurring theme throughout Marie Antoinette. It's these people who like, they can't start their lives because they're just stuck in these inhabitations that like are dictated to them, whether it be by career or where they were born and things like that. And I think that that's such an interesting kind of meta commentary for Sofia Coppola too, where it's like, she's the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola. The Coppolas are all artists. Like how do, how does she express herself? And um, it's just, yeah, it's such a good movie. I really, really liked it too. I think one of the keys to appreciating Kaylee Spaney's performance is like Emma Stone in Poor Things, the transformation, yeah, even just the physical transformation achieved through like makeup or, but a lot of it is performance. She starts the movie as like a 13, 14 year old girl and ends the movie as a grown woman. And it never feels like, oh, that's an adult playing a kid or that's a kid playing grown up. Mm-hmm. You believe the age difference that she has undergone through the movie. Uh, it's never less than completely convincing. And that to me speaks to an incredible performance, which brings us to our number ones, which I think I know just based on process of elimination, but I'm very excited that this year we all have different number ones because I feel like that hasn't happened for a while. What happened to my number two? We did your two, didn't we? No. I jumped to my number two. I apologize. I You're supposed to be in the rotation, and I, I skipped will, your two. It will all get ironed out at the end when okay. we say our lists. Then I don't know your number one. But this makes me think that I was the only one to put this on my list. You might be. Maybe. My number two film is Barbie. Oh, okay. Then I still I feel bad now. <laughs> Go ahead. Why, why do you feel bad? Because I've just been like hit and run shit talking Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. And I and I understand that. If if it weren't for Bottoms, yeah. Barbie Barbie made me laugh more than any other film this year. Yeah. And considering the promotional tie-in toy commercial we could have gotten, right. I was amazed and surprised by how much I enjoyed it by what the many things that film is about and about the film, um, the theater rather was full of little girls who had dressed up to see it and were getting to see this rather than some piece of shit. Yeah, definitely. Say what you want about Barbie. It's not a piece of shit. Yeah. And I, and I no. give Greta Gerwig and her partner a lot of credit for writing something that wasn't just intended to be 90 minutes to sell more toys. It was very entertaining. There's a couple things in it that sly. All the marketing stuff with Will Ferrell, you don't need. You don't need that half hour at all. But um, I can't I can't think of many times at the movies this year where I had more fun. Again, great. You know, if Margot Robbie didn't exist, they would have had to invent her to play Barbie. Yeah. Ryan Gosling is so funny as Ken. Like, there's a lot of great performances in the movie. There's a lot of clever humor. It has ideas. It has, again, incredible costumes and production design and art direction and practical sets. There's so much to like in Barbie, and I'm so glad it exists, and I'm so glad it was as successful as it is. Um, there are and things Michael ab- Sarah as Alan. 
He's mm-hmm. funny. There are things in it that I'm like, oh, I'm not crazy about this and I'm not crazy about this. But all of that is just bullshit because uh, it's the movie of the year. And I'm glad, as you pointed out, JB, that like they gave the reins of the movie to someone who is an artist and wanted to do more with it than just cash in on the name Barbie. Right. Because my biggest argument for the film is again, do you know what this could have been? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, for me, it's like a three star out of four movie, but that's not to say that like, I think what Margot Robbie's doing in it is like, the best use of like movie star persona like that's yes. what you, that's what you want out of a movie star performance and like even though her last two movies haven't been completely for me i will watch what greta gerwig does with anything because she's so talented yeah and um i love that she has like a perspective um mm-hmm. to anything that she can put onto any material so um yeah it's a good movie there's a moment on a park bench when Barbie shares a moment mm-hmm. with an older woman yeah. who's mm-hmm. never identified. That's one of the best <clears throat> that's one of the best film moments of the year as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's really sweet. Was there a better last line to a movie this year? Oh, I'm I'm all aboard for that. Talk yeah. about people who think this is pink colored marketing right. crap. My right. god. And to have <laughs> millions of young girls sitting in movie theaters yes <laughs> uh great pick and i apologize for jumping over it i for some reason got the order wrong so thank you for you were channeling your inner hatred of barbie correcting me conscious manner and you're also angry that it's not on hulu and uh, it's on hbo max uh and oh, now quick, oh quick, go ahead quick side note real quick I belong to this thing. I I'm, might show up dead because I'm mentioning it. Universal sends me elaborate surveys to fill out because I'm part of some sort of thing where they've divined that I see a lot of movies. Okay. So it's, I think it's one a week. And it's, have you seen this? What'd you think? Would you buy it? Blah, 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 blah. And I've been doing it for a year. My prize for filling out these surveys for the year was they sent me a free digital copy of Barbie. That's hmm. weird. Cause it's not a universal movie. That was my thank you. Yeah. Universal is like, he was nice to us. We can't send them fast X. But it's, <laughs> it's larger. It's larger marketing because even though uh, got it's it. from universal, got they it. asked about movies from every studio. Their, their reach is wide, but thank you universal. Cause yeah. I Watch that again on movies anywhere. Yeah, for sure. Do you think my criticisms of Barbie are because I'm a sub? So I think like <laughs> I'm intimidated by Barbie. <laughs> the whole Matchbox Twenty scene. Oh my god! Yeah, it's so much funnier than the I'm just Ken. I mean, I'm just Ken is fine, and I if it wins an Oscar, fine. Even though I think the Billie Eilish song is much better and should win. Um. But the Matchbox 20 stuff is so much, it's so funny. Yeah. Let me get my guitar and sing at you. Is yeah. So great. Yeah. yeah for sure. Oh, All right. A little bit later that I'm going to sit down and have you talk through the Godfather. <laughs> I really, yeah. I really oh, yeah. enjoyed that joke. Yeah. 
And there's a good Zack Snyder bro uh, joke in the movie, too. Um, now we're at our number ones. I apologize. Here we go. Number ones. Adam Risky, your number one favorite movie of the year. Uh, my number one movie is a movie that just completely blindsided me. And I didn't, I, I had Oppenheimer and the holdovers at times at number one, but it didn't feel right. And I was just praying something would come along. And finally I watched the house party remake (laughs) and I was just like, and it got rid of everything that I didn't like about the original. I didn't like that. The original was funny. I didn't like performances. I didn't like that. The original had good music and good cheer. It had the best final line of the year where they said, well, that was a house party, (laughs) but that was great. It had LeBron James, which makes everything better. Um, no, my number one for the year truly surprised me, uh, and it's Godzilla minus one, and I didn't even want to see it like as recent as the <laughs> holiday show because I felt like I'm just not a Godzilla guy. And I yeah. saw it with Mark, and I turned to him after it was over, and I'm like, no, I'm just not an American Godzilla guy. Yeah, and because um, I don't think those movies are particularly great. Um, the last one was fine, but the other ones not so much. Um, but this was just so involving from like a human story aspect where like the God, it's like Halloween four where it's like Michael Myers is in this Godzilla is in this. This is just a bonus. Cause I'm into this human drama into itself. Um, I love that. Th- I, maybe it's just cause Toho knows it better than anyone, but like, it seems like every special effect shot in Godzilla of Godzilla is like a money shot. Like every mm-hmm. shot of it looks great the way that they frame it there's scenes where like the kamikaze plane is doing like a circle around it and you just see godzilla kind of in the background and it just looks incredible special effects um, are amazing yeah i mean like just the way that it's uh you know set up is just so beautiful um i love that like the last act is almost like jaws like where it's like we've got this plan and then the plan doesn't fully work. And mm-hmm. like, what do we do now? And like, how do we deviate from it? And um, I think a lot of it just, I think the reason why it's at number one in part is just because of the giddy happiness that I get from just a movie I had no expectation of other than just I heard from other people that it was good. Mm-hmm. And then just being sh- blown away by it. And that's what you're chasing all year is you want to have a movie that just completely overwhelms you and and you fall in love with it and that's what godzilla minus one was for me and it's sort of ironic that all toho did was go back to the source yeah because if anything godzilla minus one resembles the original godzilla before american studios got a hold of it and added raymond burr that it was a serious film about serious things that happen to have a giant lizard in it Mm -hmm. i don't think you can say this with a hundred percent surety, but Godzilla minus one would almost work as a movie without Godzilla. Sure. Yeah. And maybe that's the key because then Godzilla becomes value added. And right. you're like, not this really interesting period drama with interesting characters that had things on their minds that were important. And then I also got a giant lizard movie. Yeah. And it's also kind of like Jaws in the sense where it's like, a group of citizens are like, we've got this problem and nobody else is going to solve it. Like we got to get together and be the ones to fix it because nobody else is going to do it. Mm -hmm. And like that enormous challenge. 
And fuck if like that Godzilla theme doesn't play well in this movie. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. When like, it first comes on, it's like, holy shit. It's undeniable. It's just yeah. like it's never played better than in the context of this movie. It's like when the Aston Martin shows up again um, in uh, that Skyfall. one. Skyfall. Yeah, recent James yeah. Bond film. Uh, and it's this. another it's another make your own family movie, which again is a theme that I love. Holdovers being another one, you know, it's like it's it's come up again and again. Um, I wish I would have seen Godzilla minus one in a theater. I watched it on a screener at home. Oh, oh my god! Yeah, yeah, I still I loved actually, it. It's still on my top ten. But I actually managed to get to one of the screenings in the theater's big impressive screen. Yeah. So I was happy for that because for like a week, it was one show a day and then it left there. So I got in on time. Um, if any of our listeners are hesitating to see Godzilla minus one, go, my God, you, you have to see Godzilla minus one. And I, I know around here it's still in theaters. So you might. Well, it's this great success story because it was supposed to play for a week. And it did so well. They were like, well, let's keep it. And it just keeps expanding and making more and more money. It's still playing around here. And it's it's amazing. And it's great. Yeah. Yep. Uh, JB, I think I know your number one. I'm going to skip it and talk about mine. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. What's your number one? What? I skipped your number two. It was a callback. Uh, my number one uh, film of the year is Killers of the Flower Moon which I was primed to like because years ago, my wife read the book and was very taken with it. And as it turns out, uh, she has a connection to the Osage story. And um, I mean, not only is it Martin Scorsese, but I think it's Leonardo DiCaprio giving the best performance he's ever given. It's about a lot of things in a way that we're not yet used to them being talked about. I remember after Rob went to a critic screening, he sent me a cryptic text. When you finally see killers, tell me what you think of this moment. You'll know it when you get to it. Mm -hmm. And when I went to see it by God, I knew exactly what he was talking about. And it's one of 10 things that make, Martin Scorsese, a genius and the greatest living American filmmaker. Uh, it revolves around Scorsese's cameo in the oh, film. Okay. Okay. And I was going to what say, what's saying, the moment, but okay. What it's saying about this film's place in the larger history of the way these events have been um, portrayed. I've read quibbles that it's too long. I don't think it's too long. I could have sat through another half hour. I know some theaters got in trouble because they added an intermission and Scorsese didn't want an intermission. And I think it's Scorsese's right to decide whether there be an intermission or not. But that being said, with all of these longer films, I wish more filmmakers would opt for an intermission. I think there's a natural place for an intermission in Killers of the Flower Moon. And I think the theaters would be in favor of it because they'd sell more treats. Sure. Um, I guess the argument is I want you to see it from beginning to end and not have it be interrupted because I want the cumulative effect of it to build up. Mm. I don't know. Um, I thought it was an amazing film in 10 different ways. And before you mentioned the Oppenheimer thing, 
I thought it would I thought it would be a shoe in for best picture this year. And maybe it will be like but I think that's because of my reaction. I don't and think I, there's a clear front runner right now. The narrative hasn't once the all the top ten lists are out and all that, then the narrative kind of starts and we'll see what starts to pick up uh awards and things like that. So for all did, I know, this will win. But did the two of you like it? Yes, very much. Yeah, I liked it too. Um, I need to see it another time because like the Irishman, I liked a lot the first time I saw it, but then I loved it the second time and every time since. So this is another one where I feel like I need to see it another time. My, my, I guess, hesitation with it, the first viewing was I felt like Scorsese knew how to tell the story better in the last hour and a half than he did in the first two hours. I felt like it was sort of like, not that a mo- every movie needs a protagonist, but I felt like it was a revolving protagonist in the way where it didn't have a point of view necessarily as much as it could have. And then once the FBI shows up, it's like he knew exactly how to tell the story from that point on. And he had the button with the epilogue at the end. And that's obviously like his master statement of the movie. And he yeah. clearly knows what he's trying to say. But like, I, I don't know if it was just... I wanted Lily Gladstone's character to be like the focal point at the beginning and less of DiCaprio or what. But um, on the first viewing, that was my my hesitation. I thought it was part of Scorsese's master plan mm-hmm. to not make her the focal point. Right. And I also read that early in the film's development, DiCaprio was supposed to play the Jesse Plemons role. Yeah. And it was going to be more of a straight policier but I give them so much credit for upending that because one of my favorite moments in the film is when Plemons shows up and says, I'm here to investigate the murders. And DiCaprio says something like, well, in what way? Mm-hmm. And there's a pause. This moment's in the trailer. Well, like who did them? <laughs> and because at that point, going off what Adam just said, we've been immersed in this topsy-turvy awful universe for so long that that moment brings us back to reality Mm -hmm. that terrible wrongs have been done here and it's time uh, to pay the fiddler um one of the smaller details i loved was when we discover that the robert de niro character has been taking out insurance policies on some of the other characters just the level the level of greed and an awfulness to that, I thought. Um, or that one MFer who wanted to adopt the kids just mm-hmm. to like kill them mm-hmm. to inherit their um, land rights. It's a, I mean, yeah. it's a cold drink of water. Yeah, for I thought the first people, but yeah, I think the movie might have like one of the, if not the scene of the year, but one of my favorite scenes of the year, where it's um, the final meeting between Lily Gladstone and Leonardo DiCaprio. And what yeah. that says about complicity and um, it's and just clear and how clear her question is to him. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And he has nothing to lose at that point by just answering honestly. It's so great I, to I see Scorsese still making movies of this caliber this late in his life that we're still getting these sort of towering achievements from him. Um, DiCaprio, I think, has only been getting better with age. But to me, the I, it was so great to see Robert De Niro like yeah. dialed in 
and given a character worth playing, I mean, obviously we had the Irishman just a few years ago and he's so great in the Irishman, but we, he makes some shit in between these great movies. And so it can be easy to forget that like, he's still, he's not a once great actor. He's still a great actor who's capable of being great given the right material. And he's so good in this movie playing just the fucking devil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great movie. Um, I'm really glad that you picked it because I'm glad that it's represented on one of our lists. Mm-hmm. Uh, my one seems a little bit trivial after talking about Killers of the Flower Moon, but it is May, December, the latest film from Todd Haynes. J-Bones, you had this at 10? And I have to say, I know, I knew somehow, maybe through text or Twitter, that you were a big fan. Yes. Uh, we watched it. And I thought parts of it were interesting, but other parts left me cold. And then on Christmas Eve, I took my son and his girlfriend to dinner and they began to talk about the film in a way that I had not been thinking about the film. And over the course of the dinner, they completely changed my mind about the film in terms of our discussion. And I don't know what my blind spot was, but it's a very important film about some very specific things. And it's very deceptively not about some of the things you think the film is about, but it's actually about some other things too. Uh, Someone on the Twitter pointed out that Natalie Portman finally found a role that leaned into her strong suit. Um, And I thought that was true. And everyone's giving credit to the husband for his performance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's great, but I thought Juliana Moore was the performance of the film because what she's doing is much harder. I mean, they're all, I think they're all three incredible in completely different ways. Yeah. Um, Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman have more in common than you think, than you realize until the movie is over because she has one of the best last lines of any character uh, this year, Julianne Moore does. And it completely changes the way you've been watching her. Um, Again, it's uh, Sean Fennessy on the big picture podcast once referred to Todd Haynes as one of our great processors of popular culture. And I thought that was so interesting because obviously here he's processing not just the Mary Kay Letourneau story, but just tabloid journalism through the lens of sort of a lifetime movie that's being elevated to indie art. Um, This, it gives a run for Barbie for last scene of the year. Once we see the movie that Natalie Portman is making. Um, But uh, And given culture, I gave the film so much credit for saying, well, what happens what happens 10 years from right right and that's what i think is so interesting about charles melton if i'm robert downey jr my heart is breaking because he was the lock for the oscar and then charles melton came along and now people are like no 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 it's this guy um as this guy who was in this been in this state of arrested development his entire life because his childhood was taken away from him by this adult woman who got pregnant with his baby when he was 13 and so it's it's looking at that in an honest way, but then there's also a level of I think the movie is working on so many levels. There's a level of like ironic distance because 
of the aesthetics of the movie and the way that it sort of functions as this lifetime movie. And it's also because this movie was written by a former casting agent. It's also very much about performance. Mm -hmm. It's about acting. It's about who we perform for the ways in which we perform. um, What of our, what all of our different roles are and how they function uh, it has some really brutal things to say about actors, I think, in terms of the Natalie yes. Portman performance. But it's very, very funny. Uh, I just think it's this balancing act of tones, of ideas um, that I responded to more than any other movie this year. You won't find a better scene in an American film this year than the scene where Juliana Moore's daughter is trying on graduation dresses Mm. and all of the things that go unsaid that a lesser filmmaker in a, oh, I don't know, Lifetime movie might have underlined. But um, I don't want to spoil it, but that scene in particular really, really got to me. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you guys are saying. And then just like... Just like the uh, the lack of consideration for those kids, like whether it be like Natalie Portman's kind of answers, like with that have zero tact about like sex and performance, yeah. like in the in the school and um, what Julia Moore is saying, and then just seeing like the thing that like will help you even appreciate Charles Melton's performance even more is when you see him, his developments and kind of his arrested development and cap of his maturity compared to like his son who's much more mature than Mm -hmm. he is and you see the two of them together the scene on the roof is amazing Mm -hmm. that whole line from like i mean julia moore's last line is like a devastator and then also like natalie portman's line where she just says that's just what adults do yeah and it's just like the way that you could read that in two different ways is very interesting um i also thought like people were kind of playing up like in a negative way like campiness because of the music and yeah, things yeah, like yeah. That. and i just thought like i don't know if you guys interpret it this way but like the line where she's like we're out of hot dogs but it's like <laughs> but with the music swelling and stuff yeah. kind of just to me was just like this is how this woman thinks like this is a dramatic development 100 the, the stuff that is going on is you know she's a master of manipulation and mm-hmm. it's like, the music thing was one of my favorite things because of at one point it drops out. Yeah. It's not for the whole movie. It's mm-hmm. about half, although I'd have to clock that. Yeah. The fact, again, it tells you that it's okay to laugh, but also it smash cuts to more hot dogs than anyone needs. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that this is a dramatic development in her day uh, makes it yeah, not just like uh, reveals something about the character, but makes it funny. You know, um, I, I'm a big Todd Haynes fan. I tend to love all of his movies. So I admit I was like primed to love this movie, but then to see it work as well as it does um, was one of the true kind of joys of the year for me. Uh, it was like, 
I was re- the almost the opposite of Adam's uh, experience with Godzilla minus one or my experience with the holdovers where I was just like, I was so ready to love this movie. And then it was even better than I had hoped it would be uh, was a great feeling. I, I love, I love everything in the movie, the daughter who comes home from college and has everyone's number, <laughs> including mm-hmm. her parents, you know, that yeah. she kind of sees through the bullshit of all of it. It's just so good. Yep. I want to thank my son and his girlfriend for setting me straight. <laughs> um, let's uh, go ahead and read through our top tens, 10 to one, and then we can mention our also rans and or honorable mentions. Adam, you want to do yours first? Uh, sure. Um, number 10 is past lives. Number nine is bottoms. Eight poor things. Seven theater camp. Six Mobland, five Sanctuary, four Oppenheimer, three Somebody I Used to Know, two The Holdovers, one Godzilla minus one. J Bones? Number 10 is May December. Number nine is Bottoms. Number eight is A Haunting in Venice. Number seven, Godzilla minus one. Number six, Poor Things. Number five, Dream Scenario. Number four, The Iron Claw. Number three, The Holdovers. Number two, Barbie. And number one, Killers of the Flower Moon. My 10 is American Fiction. My nine, The Holdovers. My eight, John Wick Chapter 4. My seven, Godzilla Minus One. My six, Knock at the Cabin. Number five, Oppenheimer. Number four, Dream Scenario. Number three, Poor Things. Number two, Priscilla. And number one, May, December. Um, My honorable mentions include Past Lives, the Iron Claw, Bottoms, and Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. How about you guys? My runners-up are Asteroid City, You Hurt My Feelings, No One Will Save You, Last Voyage of the Demeter, Jewels, John Wick 4, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Still, Dumb Money, Cobweb, and The Killer. Very nice. Um, my runners up are uh two of them changed as we were talking. So good nice. job to, to you two. Um <laughs> uh Blackberry, Champions, Dream Scenario, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh Knock at the Cabin, May December, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, Part One, question mark, maybe just <laughs> possible dead reckoning, um, Priscilla and what happens later. Very nice. I should have included Killers of the Flower Moon on my honorable mentions as well, because uh, that's a really good movie. Um, I dropped out Taylor Swift for Priscilla, and I dropped out John Wick for Killers of the Flower Moon. Nice. Um, great year for movies. Great top 10 yes. show. Yes. Make sure you're going to fthismovie.com every day this week for more best of the year coverage we have uh jb's list of favorite movie moments we have mine and adam's list of great performances we'll have more top tens from many of the contributors to the site i'm very excited i love this week on the site so uh thank you guys for doing this show for seeing so many movies this year for coming up with such great lists it's always great to talk about our favorites together thank you Thanks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.
Thanks for listening to FS Movie.